0: Hello and welcome to this episode of Superhero Ethic. Today we're asking the question, can you blow up the world to help a whole bunch of other people? How does it feel to sit back and watch while all sorts of galactic disasters happen because you're getting ready to prevent something even worse? And is there a way that I can tie in criticizing Cap for his actions in Infinity War to this much bigger discussion about Eternals? Wait and find out all of that after this quick commercial message. That I have no control over. But Cap probably does. Welcome back. I'm Matthew, your host. I'm joined today by Pete Wright. Pete is one of the founders of the Next Real family of podcasts, where uh, the Marvel Movie Minute that I've gotten the honor to help co-host this season about Thor has been on. And Pete and I have just been having a lot of great conversations about all things uh, movies and MCU and uh, movies versus uh, long-form TV shows and stuff like that, and realized we were both really interested in this new movie that came out, The Eternals, and all the ethical questions it raised. So, Pete, I'm super glad to have you here.
1: Well, I'm, I'm delighted to be here. Thanks for inviting me.
0: Cool. Well, let's kind of just dive in. And, and first, I want to get a, your sense of going into this movie. What did you know beforehand? Like, did you know about the Eternals from comic books? Had you done some research beforehand?
1: No, in fact, I had uh, we actually covered the show on the Next Reels Film Board uh, podcast, and so I didn't start reading the uh, earlier books on the Eternals until, uh, until I was researching for that show. So the Eternals mm-hmm. were pretty new for me. I knew I had read some of the, the spoilery stuff around some of the other characters that were going to be introduced, but I went in pretty cold. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I was in a kind of similar place. I'd seen some stuff about how we were going to get—I'd seen some great stuff about the diversity of the cast— I have seen some great pieces by Camille Nanjani about how right. the Herculean efforts that he had to go through to get his body to look the way it did and how he was wanted people to know, like, this is not normal, which I did think was funny because he never took his shirt off in the movie. So a right. lot of that effort. We saw his arms, but, like, probably yeah. on a cutting room floor somewhere.
1: He looked great, to, to his he credit. He, he he looked great, if if you're into that that sort of superhero body type and, and coming from where he had been on Silicon Valley, like that, that's a triumph. I, I celebrate his efforts.
0: Yeah. And I, I've been a huge fan of his ever since the pseudo rom-com he did about his based on an actual story about his wife getting sick, Mm -hmm. uh, which is another great movie that I now can't remember the name of, but I'll make sure I remember it before the end of this. But, uh, but yeah, I I was like you, I didn't know much. I went into it kind of cold and you know, today we're talking about the ethics, not the um, movie itself. But I would just start by saying this is not my favorite Marvel movie by a long shot. And I, but I think in part because of the questions we're going to get into, because I felt like the movie raised a lot of great ethical questions that I kind of wish we had more time to explore and, and maybe kind of think like maybe this should have been like a, you know, six or eight episode disney plus series instead of a right. movie um but it definitely you know it, it kind of left me as like not my favorite movie but a lot of great questions to dive into what, what was your kind of overall thought on the movie
1: well that was uh, that was mine too i i felt like there, there were three sort of broad categories of challenges that i had with the movie and mm-hmm. so i you know and i in so far as i don't want to you know pile on because movies are hard to make that should be yep. the, you know the, the stated up front movies are hard it is a, a work of art, right? In terms of just pushing pixels and locations mm-hmm. and camera, oh, it's like so it, it is so beautiful. I, I wish so deeply that the narrative uh, actually lived up to how beautiful mm-hmm. it it is. Um, I, I think there were way too many characters. Uh, there were it, it was too big, jammed too fast into too short of time, and as a result, it ended up being a two and a half hour movie that felt like a two and a half hour movie. Like it felt. Yeah long to me now the, the so the the first category that we already covered on on our show which I'll, I'll sort of shy away from but i think is foundational for my position on this film is mm-hmm. that it's sloppy storytelling and mm. and you know doing things with characters that are a little bit nonsensical and uh, so once you get past the sloppy storytelling you get into some of the more ethical sort of moral questions that introduced conflicts in the marvel cinematic universe writ large that are not addressed to any degree of sufficiency in this movie that are, are yeah. legit problematic. And that's, that's sort of where I, where I struggle. Um, and, and finally, the size of the movie is so gargantuan that I wonder if some of the ethical questions are able to be washed away because frankly, celestials are so big, you can't even grasp how big they are. And right. maybe it's okay <laughs> to kill a bazillion people because they're just so big, everybody. R- well, and that's right? why
0: we're going to do this podcast because yes. we're going to pull them back down to Earth. We're going to make them have that conversation. And I do agree with you. And I think, especially actually on your second point, um, you know, that I have a lot of frustration that I've talked about in other episodes about the multiverse and some of the time travel stuff because it, I find mean, it hard to understand. It's hard to understand, but also because it makes me wonder about the agency of everything. And there's a a great article that I linked to that kind of raised a similar point here about, you know, why do we care about these great stories that Steve Rogers and and Tony Stark and uh, Natasha and all the rest of them have been uh, doing uh, if – it's all just like tiny things compared to these Celestials, you know? And that's, that's kind of an issue that Marvel's had for the most part. And I, I, I wish that with a longer story, they could have done that. But, but I still think there is a lot of these great questions we can dive into in part because the movie doesn't answer them. So there's a lot yes. more room for us to, to dive into. And, and so let's just start with the existence of the Eternals themselves. Like what we learn is that these are beings that are millennia old, um, you know that the Celestials, at least what what they have been doing, began even before the Infinity Stones, which that changes a whole bunch of stuff about the MCU's version of reality. But that's a whole other question, um, and I'm sure I just got ten angry emails explaining to me exactly how that all fits together. Right, that's not the point here. But so the point is that, the, as far as I understand, the Eternals are basically sent to a planet. And, you know, their job is to help the, the people of that planet grow and thrive until there's enough of them that the celestial can sort of eat all of that. You know, basically they're the, like the fertil- they're tending the fertilizer so that the celestial seed can grow. And that every 6,000 years or so, or however long it takes for this all to happen, 10,000 years, whatever it might be, they basically get their minds wiped and then start all over again. Um... That alone brings up all kinds of interesting ethical questions. Like what, what what's your take on the existence of, of, of these beings, the eternals, and how we're supposed to relate to them?
1: Well, and I, I would posit before we start addressing that specific question. Do any of these questions come up when you think about the matrix? Right? Because mm-hmm. I have it's essentially the same story, right? We have right. the robot overlords in the sky blackens out and then they use humans as batteries. That's that's what we're doing. In the Eternals, and so um, you know they've just done it on such a—they've—they've uh, they've just broadened the scale in terms of just raw physics, celestial physics that—that that, uh, you know that that might make it a little bit. More challenging to actually, right. you know, conceive of, of what they're talking about. But I keep coming back to like I, what the, what it seems like they're trying to do is like, have you ever stepped on an anthill? Like, how many ants have you inadvertently killed? Yeah. Uh, ants that are at the foundation of our biological sort of uh, ecosystem. How many have you killed because you're just so big, right? Yeah. That that trying to recast that story by making us the ants, humans the ants, and telling the story from our perspective does present an interesting ethical narrative challenge. I think that's a fun playground.
0: Absolutely. And uh, first of all, I will just say, um, we were looking for one last guest for our podcast on the new Matrix movie that's going to come out. So thank you for just volunteering for that. <laughs> um, I have no problem with the ethics of voluntolding people. Um, it, it'll be a lot of fun, though, because uh, my one of the guests will be my father-in-law, who is a expert in AI design. Oh, and he thinks the 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 machines were right and that we're wrong to fight the machines in
1: the Matrix. He's a Celestial. That's the thing. He's a Celestial. (laughs) Clearly.
0: He's my father-in-law, so I have to say that. But getting back to our point, I think you raise a really good point. And it's interesting because it's a a topic I've seen explored in other science fiction, which the MCU is sort of, kind of, not really, but the same kind of idea of like asking what-if questions to, to bring things to our own world. Mm-hmm. In particular, it reminds me of an episode of what is my current favorite Star Trek show that's on right now, The Orville. Um, and in The Orville, there's an episode where these humans are captured and put in what is, for all intents and purposes, a zoo by a life form that is of a much higher level sentience-wise. And so... For them, there's a perfect analogy of they are treating humans the way we humans treat lions and dolphins and all the other animals that we put in these pens where we try to treat them nicely but let, you know, humans go and look at them. And and you're right. Like in this, it's the – it reminds me kind of of the Loki, uh, you know, the the Loki quote of uh, Nick Fury is saying something to him about, like, respecting their rights. And he says, you know, what rights to the – what's the relationship of an anthill to a boot? Yes. Um and, and I think that's kind of one of the things I think most is interesting here is that on that level, like, we're the boot, this, we're the anthill this time, so of course we care about it, but we do the kind of things that the Celestials do to others all the time. It's that the Eternals, I, the essence I get is that normally the Eternals are not supposed to develop, they're not supposed to start caring about the ants and that this time they have.
1: Yeah, uh, right. And and you think of the other stories that Marvel is has told using the same conceit. And in fact, you're already doing a podcast on it, right? Isn't yeah. the relationship <laughs> of Asgard and the and you know Thor and Odin isn't that sort yeah. of the same relationship to Midgard and humanity? You know, uh, and so I, I think that's really fascinating. In this case, the Eternals, the, it it's wrought with such tension because they feel in large part purposeless as exercised in the film right? right and that's a that's a challenge that i have because i don't understand as an audience member how to care now from an ethical perspective what role do they have ultimately in fostering this sort of you know humanity as battery for celestial uh, angle when they're not going to take part in other mass casualty events, like right. dare dare we bring up Thanos, right? So right. what what gives their notion of caring about the nature of humanity any agency at all, when they're so mercurial about it?
0: Yeah, I think that's one of the real questions slash problems I had, um, especially because, you know, they start out with this idea of we don't interfere, and you know, and I um. You know, Hobson's Law, I don't want to take everything to the Holocaust and to, to World War II, but it is. I mean, it, just from a pure numbers game, if your goal yes. is to grow humanity, um, you know, even the, the Holocaust is six million Jews, however many million others. World War II itself is probably close to 80 or 100 million. Mm-hmm. Um, and so on the one hand, they established this we won't interfere thing, which, you know, I, I was originally going to title this uh, episode, I might still, The Eternals Need Uncle Ben. Because someone should be saying to them, with great power comes great responsibility, stop Thanos, stop Hitler, stop the plague. Yes. But at the flip side then, it seems like they're trying to play this role behind the scenes of slowly fostering human development through technology. And uh, Festus especially, who I think is one of my favorite characters, um, you know, he's put in this really interesting situation of he's trying to help develop technology and as we, we don't Again, I, I want more details, but I think the implication is that he develops something that causes people to like. He maybe like helps inspire Einstein to figure out relativity or whatever it is that moves people towards the atom bomb, yeah. and, and and we get this harrowing scene of him in Hiroshima that I love, but I, how do you? Where do you see like sort of his questioning up against this idea that all of them have of we won't interfere
1: yeah, no, it doesn't it doesn't make any sense at all, does it because if you if you have a we won't interfere when the bad stuff happens. You certainly have no problem with a we interfere for anything that you perceive as good, and I, I need to I need to quote somebody here because I loved Aaron Earls' review of this movie uh, over at the Center for Faith and Culture because he says this, and I bring it up specifically because uh, it's your fault. He says this, uh, following along in the footsteps of the characters. The only question to consider is how things will impact you. The probable mantra of the film, quote, when you love something, you protect it, is less with great power comes great responsibility and more you do you. And mm. I love that because yeah. it is a movie that is trying to recast the central sort of perspective uh, in the film, not as the the a superhero or a generic um, you know, a, a generic vessel of uh, sort of an audience avatar, but of, as humanity and that humanity gets to do whatever it feels right at the time. That's yeah. what the, the Eternals consistently demonstrate. They do whatever the hell they want whenever they want to do it, and it feels good. And that, I think, is a real challenge. And Phaestos is one of the great exemplars of this, of you know, trying to come up with things that will keep moving humanity forward. And if it weren't for the sardonic personalities of his peers, he would have gone bonkers with it.
0: <laughs> yeah. and I think that's such a great point and a great quote, and, and not— um not surprising i I, i've heard a lot of other things from that place and really enjoyed them because this is something i've talked a lot about in other episodes that there's a very nice plot theory of you know there's a very nice plot trope of i'm sent here to hate these people but i get to know them and so now i love them yes and that can be a heartwarming story the problem is that when you're not able to apply the empathy beyond the specifics that you've met, you know, it's kind of what you're saying. It's the, you know, am I just protecting what I love? Is it because, you know, there should be the idea to be like, okay, well, but if I'm able to love these people who I didn't think I could love, does that mean I should still protect that other group that I haven't figured out how to love yet? Um, and it, Reminds me actually of a conversation I had in college where uh, I was talking with a couple of uh, vegetarians, uh, and uh, one of them was saying that she's not a real vegetarian because in her mind, like she just she would she wouldn't eat anything with a face because in her mind, like she can't eat anything cuddly, and you know because she was saying like she'd probably she'd be happy eating like snakes or alligators because they're not cuddly, they're not cute, mm-hmm. and this other friend of ours just laid into her, and and she was saying like listen like there's something really horribly wrong if your decision of what species you will or won't consume for food or kill for food is based on how cuddly they seem to you. You know, that yeah. that's, not, that's not actually a good basis for a moral understanding of things, you know? You do
1: you. You do yeah. you is exactly. not a basis a, a, a moral foundation.
0: Yeah. No, I love that point because I had not even thought of it in that particular term, but you're right. It's that for each of them, it's the people who they develop an emotional relationship with and I think by the end, some of them are able to sort of do that next step of empathy of yeah. I should now have empathy not only for them but for the people on the other planet that the other Eternals are dealing with. But some of them just can never get to that point.
1: Right, right. So how does this uh, how does this impact your thinking on um, uh, Druig and his perspective on humanity?
0: Ooh. He is one of my absolute favorites because he um, – did you – this is a strange connection, I understand, but did you have watched the TV show Supergirl? Well, yes, of course I did. Okay. I I forget her name, but the my favorite villain – perhaps one of my favorite villains of all time in, in superhero-type stories is – I believe it's from the first season of Supergirl. It's um, Kara's uh, – like uh, Kara, Kara, Kara L, right? That's yeah, her name? Yeah,
1: Kara. Yeah.
0: yeah. Uh, her mother-in-law, I believe, or someone else – but her basic plot is she's going to completely mind control every human on earth and turn them into absolute automatons for two years so that they will completely fix global warming and end all the horrible things humans are doing to their planet. Right. And, and we actually had a great conversation because I remember going like, I'm not sure I would stop her. Like, you know, especially since then, like I'm all for the free will. I'm all for the autonomousness. Of course, but i can understand like to me there's some sympathy for you people are all making terrible decisions i'm going to use my power and force you to do otherwise yeah. and to me and i don't know this is the question you you were thinking about but to me druig is in a very place like that where i am still in the end going to come down on the side of agency and convincing people to make a good decision but you know he ha- he brings up similar things he talks about how humanity is destroying the planet now these terrible things are happening and that he could just you know, if you could just mind control Hitler and Stalin and and stop the armies from attacking, if you could just mind control the people who make the bomb and make them, you know, put, you know, whatever it is. And obviously there's so much more global complexity and all these larger things. But yeah, I, in the end, I think he's probably wrong, but I think he's incredibly sympathetic and that I would be very tempted to make the same kind of decisions in his place, well what, because what about he is, for yourself
1: he's ultimately sort of the the character that displays the most empathy of the of the lot, right? He yeah. just has a much more sort of activist position on it. I think just so I, I get it right. I think you're talking about Astra um in the first season yeah thank you. yeah uh, just so, so you don't get a letter um <laughs> the, which was a fantastic storyline and I just love i it, it I think about that and it breaks my heart a little bit that the show has ended because I, I've always liked that in terms of the yeah. DC CW shows um so a- anyhow I I, am, I stand conflicted on Druig, I think, mm-hmm. uh, for, for many of the same reasons, because I feel like he is the one that uh, has, has said that I can, through my great power, exercise what I believe strongly is my responsibility and help you stop killing each other, right? I right. can help you stop behaving badly, uh, and I don't believe that's—ideologically, that's like ideologically, that's right— but it sure does stop people from killing each other. Yeah. And and that's a hard line to walk. And so for the same reason, just because he's he is such a um you know, he's he he it feels like he cares so deeply uh to me that it makes it it, it makes it really interesting to watch. And the fact that he's you know, he's the one who is taking the taking action first.
0: You know, one of the things that I think of with Druig is I'm not a parent, but this analogy occurred to me, and I've talked to a couple parents who say that they, they understand this. You know, you want to teach your child to make the right choice. And yes. so you might say to the child, here's why you shouldn't hit someone else. You know, don't do this. Here's all the reasons why. But there's also a moment where if your child somehow got a hold of a very big stick, you're not going to say, hey, Johnny, please, you're going to go over and grab the stick because right. you know that the one thing they're doing right now could cause incredible damage. And to me, I I kind of feel—to me, that's kind of Druig's conflict here, is that he—on the one hand, he he wants humanity to make these decisions for themselves, perhaps, or at least that's what everyone else wants, but he sees that, like, time's running out. You know, they could destroy the planet. They could destroy each other.
1: Yes. I I think that is my central conflict with Druig, because, uh, you know, as a parent— uh, to, to extend the metaphor, um, as a parent, what you what you ideally are doing is spending your life parenting for those first, you know, 16 years, 18 years, trying to not exert your authority in that right. way, right? You're moving away from it. And Druig is doing exactly the opposite, right? He demonstrates in Babylon that he is willing to uh, exercise his power to stop humans from killing themselves, and then... He goes and creates and leaves the Eternals and creates his own little cult commune of people who are not killing each other because they're all mind controlled by him and i think that's the that's really the the complexity of druig and that's what makes his character a bit redemptive in terms of the narrative of the film for me because he's the mm-hmm. most one of the most interesting to watch yeah. um, because he is he's essentially not wrestling with this choice at all he has yeah. already made that bed and he's moved on and everybody else gets to just sort of revolve around him
0: yeah no i think that's a good point i think it's part of why his story becomes so interesting. And so let's talk about some of the other... Pulling back, though, to just kind of the Eternals overall... Yeah. Because let's start with kind of what then becomes their central question of, like, do you or do you not allow the Celestial to be born? And I I think there's two elements to it. One is the, you know, do the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few versus do the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the many, many more yet to come? Mm -hmm. Well, Hulk, put a pin in that question. I just want to start with going kind of where you were starting with if we understand that we as humans, you know, that we're trying, you know, we're raised to only morally value some things. And a lot of human development is expanding the world of who we think is morally valuable. You know, that a lot of us are taught, like, it's only people who look like us are, are the ones who are valuable. And like, we have to expand that and care more about other people. Right. Some of my vegetarian or vegan friends would say that we need to push ourselves and care more about animals. Um, But still, even for us, there's a point, you know, the the anthill is something that we're probably not going to have the same moral weight of as a person. Uh, And we can argue about that, but I think it's something that most humans kind of accept as a moral acceptable thing. From that perspective, someone like um, Icarus, you know, if he's raised all of his life to understand, or at least, you know, he learns later that these humans are small and insignificant and... They are, they are the anthill that's going to get moved out of the way for this great, wonderful celestial that will lead to trillions and trillions of, of new, new lives. From his perspective, is he wrong?
1: That may be the, the central failing of the movie, uh, is, is not adjusting our expectations of perspective. Mm-hmm. and and maybe intentionally on Chloe Zhao's part, but I feel like I really struggled with that because I was never given the opportunity to see the world from the perspective of a, of a celestial, right? Mm-hmm. Because if you pull back and put me in the, in the eyes of the celestial, and I see a planet-shaped, or an egg-shaped planet erupting with a new baby celestial, uh, before I get to the point of hearing about the story, I may change my view, right? I may change my view of, of the value of their lives over... Uh, over the lives of those on on the planet from which I sit. And uh, and so I, I think that is that rides the line between that ethical and storytelling challenge that I think the movie was trying to uh, trying to walk and did so unsuccessfully. Is he wrong? I don't know. Didn't uh, Douglas Adams already sort of answer that question in Hitchhiker's <laughs> Guide to the Galaxy, like make room for the highway? The answer is 42, man. Yeah, the answer the, is 42. the Vorlons need to—the the Vogons need
0: uh, to— That's right. Vorlons, very different story. The Vogons yes, need I to build a I You tricked me. You podcasts. totally tricked me. Yes,
1: <laughs> it is the Vogons. That, that's exactly right. And so—and um, I, and I think that's, that's the question that I want to be more satisfying— uh, that the movie has a perspective on. And I mm. I almost don't think it does. And that's what makes this conversation hard. Was he wrong? Do you yeah. think?
0: I, it, first of all, just in terms of the movie making, I, I, I definitely hear what you're saying. And I feel like my sense is that Chloe Zhao wanted to make a movie that really presented Icarus as within his own context, just as morally righteous as someone else, as, as, um, oh God, what was her name? Um, Cersei, Cersei as just as morally righteous as Cersei or someone else. And that kind of left the audience to decide. I think where it clashed is, I think you could have told that story. I think that runs up into the MCU need to have a big fight with lots of CGI and a yes. clear winner, and a clear loser at the end.
1: And, and, and let me just what... say, I'm a big fan of big battles. Like I like big battles as much <laughs> yeah. as the next guy, uh, but but I do think that this is a missed opportunity to really investigate the the weight of of sort of zealotry of of right. ideological fanaticism in Icarus. Yeah. That uh, that it, and maybe because of again filmmaking maybe because the casting and the portrayal of the character was was not sufficient maybe because of the storytelling uh, challenges that we're having here and and scripting challenges either way uh, the movie is an empty promise of a discussion of fanaticism and since the whole movie sort of has to be it's it's hanging its way its hat on fanaticism that's why the Eternals are there right it's the whole premise Is because they believe so strongly in the will of the celestials of their god,
0: and I wouldn't even call it fanaticism because this is all they've ever known. You know, fanaticism to me is when like post indoctrination. Yeah, 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 it's kind of like it's a fanaticism of the the parents who join the cult are fanatics. The kids who are born into the cult, you know, are are part of a fanatical movement to be sure, but uh, in a different way. The conversation I think I would have most wanted to see, because I think it could have given you kind of what you're asking for as well as some of the other stuff, is the conversation between Ajax and Icarus. You know, Ajax is the one who presumably has known about this all the time. And, uh, I, I, you know, we, we get to see where Ajax changes her mind, and then you have, again, a very fanatical moment. You know, the, the leader convinces the follower, but then when the leader changes their mind, the follower kills the leader for, yeah. for their heresy. I want to see the moment where... You know, where I want to see more of Ajak when she did believe, because I, as a human, obviously, I don't want to see myself obliterated. I think that's bad.
1: I have a and perspective I think, on that. Right.
0: Yeah. And right. I would like to say that maybe, so that maybe, therefore, the standard of, of value of life is at sentience or at, like, some kind of level of, you know, the difference between, like, vegetation versus animal life. Or, I, I'm not a biologist. I'm not the one to draw the line, but... I would like to say there's an objective line, but clearly it's incredibly subjective. And I do think that there's a way in which, like, it's so interesting because to me it's kind of, I'm I'm very intentionally not saying, like, what is objectively right or wrong because I don't think you can. I think the question is, is it understandable that from Icarus's moral perspective, where he sees what he sees, that... What he does is maybe horrible to us, but it's only horrible to us in the way that what we do is, is the ants is, is horrible to the ants, you know? Um, so, yeah, so it, it's it, it's to me, it's a missed opportunity, but it still at least gives us the ability to ask the question, because I, I, I think I think the movie is doing a very good job of, of, of making us like sort of pull that lens back and and ask ourselves like, yeah, is if Icarus is wrong, then where are we wrong?
1: Yeah, I, I agree with that. And I, and I actually, I, I support that point because more of the problems that I have with that whole exchange and with Ajax's role in The Eternals and in the film The Eternals is mm. uh, it, these are filmmaking challenges that I have. These are story structure challenges that I have, not the the sort of ethical, sort of moral discussion between Icarus right. and, and Ajax. I think there, there was more opportunity to plumb those depths that they did not take. But from your question, um, you know, Icarus is demonstrating... His ideological worldview consistently, arguably, through to the end of the film, when he has right. his his turn, uh, and and that's that is of merit, right? Yeah. What we get is this whole. What we I think we're missing is in this final battle, and and possibly lost in the pixel pushing of the big Marvel sort of extravaganza at the end, is. A a more sort of rich exploration of the savior versus the exploiter uh, trope, right? When when yeah, say more on that. When when it is discovered that the celestials, that the god is actually exploiting this resource, right? That that the the this thing that they were all ostensibly following. Uh, whether they were in, indoctrinated into this cult-like fanaticism, or whether they were born into it, or in, in mm-hmm. the Eternals' case, built into it, um, they are following this thing. And when they learn that this is actually a, a tool of exploitation of a natural resource on a planetary scale, that's the thing that triggers their, you know, their awakening, their awareness that something's something is right. wrong. And uh, and I feel like that is sort of. Lost in the, I don't know where, where there were the North Icelandic Sea, uh, <laughs> you know, somewhere with yeah. the, with the fingertips of of the new celestial coming out and frozen in the, in in stasis there. I, I think and that's
0: supposed to be in like kind of the archi- arch- archipelagos of the South Pacific. Oh, okay. Was my memory right. from the map, yeah, yeah.
1: where would I end up with Iceland? It was not. Iceland. I, I mean, certainly,
0: I feel like there are some tsunamis that are going to be yes. formed. Uh yeah. And it, it does, and again, this is just. This is a movie-making problem, but it's the sort of thing that's more an issue of the MCU itself. We are now at the point where someone like Doctor Strange or Hulk or someone else should have thought, wow, those are monsters I'm seeing on TV attacking London, and there's earthquakes, and maybe I should figure out what's going on. Putting that critique aside, you know, I've had this ever since Spider-Man was hanging out in New York City while dragons were coming to life in downtown Manhattan, and Spider-Man didn't notice— other story entirely yeah um yeah yeah, I it it gets to what I think is one of the most interesting questions about all this is the idea of subjectivity you know that Mm -hmm. in general we want people to have somewhat objective ideas of right and wrong you know so that it's not just well if a total stranger does something then it's wrong but if a person who i care about does the exact same thing i care about their motives so i can believe them even if i don't believe this other person you know and and this is one thing that i'm always very critical in movies like this where someone will say wow this villain is much more relatable and much more sympathetic than this other villain and my question is always is that just because the other villain didn't get a backstory you know like sure a- every villain's going to think they're a hero to some extent and I think this some here's the question that I'm kind of wrestling with is – because I don't think it's that the Eternals have some sort of moral awakening. I think it's that they develop feelings for humans. And and so my question is
1: – Well, I wanna, I'd i like to hear more about that. Like what is the difference between those two? Because aren't they sort of the same thing?
0: <sighs> yeah, well, I, I mean that's the thing. It's the, it's the difference between – I have come to realize that my, in my ethical framework doing this thing is wrong – versus i'm fine with you doing this thing to those people
1: over there to another planet
0: right but i i care about these people here you know it's, it's that whole thing of like you've taught me to care about this group but i still don't care about that other group but where it comes down to me for is and i'm curious if you have an answer on this in theory the eternals have been doing this on planet after planet after planet without a problem including this particular group of eternals have done it on many other planets so what's different this time? Why is it that this time, they, is it just the human, humans are wonderful that a lot of these things default to that I always kind of raise my eyebrows out? Is it just pure chance or luck? What, what makes this planet for the Eternals different, do you think?
1: A, a Story flag. We are assuming that their, their minds, their memories are dutifully erased before each engagement, right? Right, yeah. Okay. Um, I, I don't know. I don't know. Is it the power of love, Matthew? Is that (laughs) ultimately it? Is it the power of having two former Game of Thrones stars on screen at the same time? Is it the power of just Dane Whittington's or Whitman's uh, Mm -hmm. steely stare? Um, That feels like a little bit of of hand-wavy romanticism that makes this time different, and it is ill-explained. Uh, I, I certainly don't have an answer.
0: Yeah, I think that's where I I get lost as well because I want I want to know that. I want to know what is it that makes them, you know, because I think it, to some extent it starts with Ajax. Like, yes. what is it that makes her question this one in a way that, you're right, it's not that she's done it 10 times before. Every time she's starting from a blank slate, at least as right. I understand it.
1: That That was my understanding too, although I think that was, again, story flag. It was not clear in her flashback story uh, to Icarus, yeah. whether or not she, as the leader of this group, had some sort of additional awareness of what was going on with the Celestials and what her role was in it, right. I, I was not clear about that.
0: Yeah, and I, I think that's what, when I was saying about the subjectivity thing. I think for me that ties into what you're saying about survivor versus exploiter. Is that it's how much does it become about your own? You know, to me, there's a big difference between. I want to do the right thing versus I want people to see that I do the right thing versus I want to believe I'm the person who does the right thing, you know? And like to go back to Druig with his mind control, you know, when we're talking about objective versus objective, I think one of the things that, again, the movie doesn't name, but I wish we had more time, they kind of named it a bit, is it's easy to claim that you believe on an objective level that you can best help people by totally taking control of them. But on a subjective yes. level, you probably enjoy the power of that quite a bit, you know. And to me, one of the most interesting and at times destructive stories in all of morality is it is very easy for the human mind, and I guess maybe the eternal mind, to find a way to morally justify that which feels comfortable to us. Um, and so, yeah, I have to wonder with Jurig with any of these, like how much of it is, you know, an ethical decision versus just, I, I like these people. I don't want to kill them.
1: I like these people. Which is a good to thing them, to be sure. Or, like, yeah, yeah, I sure like these people doing nice things to one another and keeping my mindless commune going. Right. I mean, right. so much of that, for Drew, specifically from Druid's perspective, is in the the capable hands of Barry Keegan as the as the portrayer of this character because he is so good at exuding his love of the power of it, right? I yeah. think he actually portrays that exceptionally well, and we get a giant pixel-pushing forest battle about it, right? I yeah. think that's, that is that is a, a real reason to sort of celebrate a high point in the movie that allows us to see his power and his influence and, and the way he uses his power and address an MCU need that they have to have, right, as, yeah. as a beat in a big movie. I don't think many of the other, like if you go back to Festus, uh and, and his exploration of his own power, and, and that I think is another one that is not, that is more complex than just I can make spears out of gold fiber and fight mm-hmm. real hard, right? It, yeah. it is a more complex uh, sort of ability uh, that I, I think is unexplored, or I should say underexplored, because we don't ever get a chance to see Festos, you know, like really... Uh, uh, building his his ultimate sort of home, we get a brief scene of the of the bomb, which I think we both feel unrequited uh, right. uh, about that exploration, and then he takes himself out of the picture. And so I think this merits kind of that individual. We started with Ajak, but it it merits sort of an individual sort of beat by beat, like what did these people do, the Eternals, that uh, in with their time yeah not being a part of the crew uh, because there are both ethical and story problems yeah
0: and and i think it's why i keep thinking about this in terms of what it could have been in like you know an 8 to 10 episode series because yeah. you'd get so much more time to sit with the characters and also learn how each of their reactions is related to each other you know to me i don't know if we saw this connection directly but as i would understand it what druig does is a direct reaction to what Festus goes through, you know, of he wanted to teach people and hope they would make the right decision and then had his heart broken by them making the wrong decision. Yes. Druig looks at that and goes, I have a solution. If they never make a decision, they'll never break my heart. And and that's, it's a a subjective thing. It's the, yes, you are doing good for these others, but you're also protecting yourself. You know, I, I, again, I am not a parent, but I've heard many parents say that like one of the hardest parts about being a parent is letting your child fail, letting your child make the wrong decision.
1: Is it this that like uh, do, do you have any cats? <laughs> right, like is not this why humans have house cats versus you know cats who live outside because we don't want them to get sick or fleas or we don't want them to right. get hurt or hit by a car? Right, like I, it is it is part of the challenge of of becoming a caretaker. And right. and so much of this movie is they're trying to to show as many possible perspectives of caretaking and I- the ideology of caretaking uh, by way of weaving it in and out of these individuals in The Eternals. And right. sometimes it works. And then yeah. you're Kingo, and you just leave. <laughs> Kingo was such a great character in so many ways. And why I... did they let him leave? <laughs> that I'm, with, I'm 100% I, I mean, with it. you. He was a great character, and he just takes his ball
0: and goes home. Right. I wanted to see what happens to him in between him saying, I think Icarus is right. I'm walking away and then coming back to rejoin the fight, you know, yes, Um, especially because I have to imagine somewhere in a script or somewhere on a cutting room floor is the footage of him and his valet talking. Because in many ways, the valet is such a great character because he is. The human among them, you know, and he is the one who can sort of be like, you know, for Kingo to have that moment of like connecting with him. um, I mean, it it was hilarious. His his
1: final bit, Karun's Karun's final bit where he walks out and says, thank you, Eternals, for fighting on behalf of humanity and, you know, uh, uh, taking liberties with that line. But uh, it, it was a great. A great example of the kind of emotional resonance that we needed elsewhere in the film in, in yeah. even more important moments, not when they're writing and Nanjani out of the film for a while.
0: Yeah. <laughs> it's too bad. He's such a good actor. So good. So, so let's get to the elephant that we've been dancing around this whole time. Yeah. And it, it's because I think there's a lot of other, um, you know, other life forms that are interesting, but <laughs> elephants deserve attention too. Um, needs, of the vet, needs of the many... Versus the needs of the many, many many, many, many yet to come,
1: <laughs> okay, fair. What's your fair take? interpretation? Uh, the, uh, again, this is a this is a massive uh, a, a massive lift in this movie mm-hmm. that they're trying to to make us feel. Um, and i I am I have been since we. Since you invited me to have this conversation, knowing the kinds of conversations you have on this show, and the fact that you just asked the incredibly provocative question, <laughs> "Do the Jedi need an HR office?" Uh, I am, I am wondering, <laughs> I am wondering how, where you landed on this. Are you yeah. a, uh, a, are you a, a Spock or a Kirk?
0: I think it's hard. I'm going to talk about the failing of the movie first, but then I'll address the question as I think they're trying to raise it which is that in part, you're right, because we never see things from the perspective of the, of the Celestials or even the Eternals who believe in them, I'm left to wonder if they're a reliable narrator, you know? If they're saying something, I want my brother to be born. Oh, and by the way, even though my brother will kill a billion people or seven billion people, my brother will, will create the life of all of these others. I want someone other than you to tell me that, you know? Mm -hmm. and i think that's part of like i remember i i I know it was like mentioned but i remember at one point i i I said to my spouse as we were watching the movie like wait a minute what what's exactly the the bad thing that will happen if the celestial doesn't be born because i didn't quite understand because the movie didn't really explain it to me um but if we assume that all of it is true i i have to go back to you have to take the reality of what is over the potential, you know. And this is a weird place for it, but it come, you know, becomes part of my It's from where my own history is, and I, I've talked about this before. So hopefully, I won't lose too many subscribers here. But I spent the first fifteen years of my career in reproductive justice work, you know, around like you know, abortion rights and 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 parental rights and all that kind of stuff. And a part of that is the idea of, you know, the, the actual life of the, the person who's carrying the pregnancy versus the, all the potential of the fetus. And I'm not trying to make an argument of that. Uh, I think that there's so much complexity to that. It's, it's much more than anyone's slogan on any side can be, though I have my particular political leanings on it that are very much over to the left. But it, to me, in, the, in some way, it's kind of a similar idea. It's do you allow the birth of a new creation if the birth is going to kill the host. Um, And does the host have the ability to say, no, thank you. We're going to terminate this. And in like, I don't think the MCU was trying to make an abortion parable writ large because they don't like controversy, Um, but they kind of did. And I, I, again, I think if I'd had more attention to the eternals, to the celestials, maybe I could have come down on that side and, and I have to recognize my own subjectivity i'm a human i i it's hard for me to accept the idea that my life is not morally significant in a grander scheme of things but the well, way uh, they yeah. frame the question here at least i don't i don't think that it is
1: you don't think that it is you so you think the celestial should have been born
0: no no i th- i think I think they were right to stop the celestial okay. being born
1: all right yeah i i ultimately I think they are too but but part of it, again, story flag, is because we've never met the fl- Celestials. I don't think yeah. they made a hell of a good case about why we need Celestials, right? Yeah. Don't, is it really the one that we meet enough? Like, doesn't he do enough? <laughs> do we really need to, to, to bear another one? So that's a, that's a, a, a story flag that, that I have. I didn't yeah. feel in favor of the Celestials at it, all. It,
0: and I would just add to that, they actually go to great efforts to make the celestials appear malevolent. Yes, they you do. You know, the, the right. red eyes, the booming voice. And then when um, Cersei has stood up to them and she's kind of just yoinked out to another part of the galaxy mm-hmm. in what seems to be to stand trial or face punishment, none of that makes me believe that celestials have our best intentions at heart. But but yeah, it, but, but so I think we're right about the story problem. But yeah, yeah. assuming... Take all that away. Let's exactly. assume you do believe that everything the Celestials will say, is it okay to blow up Earth for the creation of all this other life that will come next?
1: Yeah, and, and I think ultimately what, what the movie is trying to wrestle with is if you have the means to stop it, right? let right. us weigh the value of collected humanity against one Celestial collective versus the one should have we should be able to put those on the scales of justice and and now add to the fact that we have the ability to stop this thing. We don't know what the repercussions are. We don't know how long this stoppage might last. Something else will come of it. We know because there are post-credit scenes. But what we but what we have now is the power to exude our metaphysical authority over this thing and stop it. And therefore, we did right. right. We did, and uh, so get rid of. All of the other questions of where the hell are the other superheroes? Uh, I don't know because we just happen to have the right, you know, three or four of them here to make this job work. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, they, they, I think, made the case that the value of humanity was greater than the value of the one uh, yeah. celestial, uh, no matter how very, very big that celestial is.
0: Right, and, and even there though, it's a case like because I, the many outweigh the needs of the one, but also remember the the bias of it. You know, yeah, there are millions and millions of bacteria cells that live in my body when I get an infection. And I yep. decide that the needs of the one, me, are more important than those millions of living cells, Right. Uh, living bacteria or virus or whatever they are. Um, well, and the and- fact
1: that all of the billions of, of life forms that are supposedly coming later are potential life forms. Right. They do not exist here and now. And I think that is the, that's the sort of uh, non- uh, sort of, uh, it, it's not a, uh, a tightrope to say at all that the value mm-hmm. of a life here and now is higher than the value of a life that is not even yeah. conceived.
0: I was pretty frustrated with the whole "what if" project because, to me, it didn't stay with "what if." It just became here's Another ways story. to introduce yeah. characters into the multiverse. <laughs> but if the "what if" you know, if the "what if" storytelling went back to it, here's a "what if" I would love to see. I would love to see another version of the Eternals where it's set on a completely different planet, but they probably look a lot like us and, you know, like aliens do, but they have weird ears or something, but something that is very relatable for us as humans in the audience. And we come to understand that the characters are facing the same struggle, except we know because of the power of what if that the celestial that wants to be born to destroy this planet will create Earth.
1: I see what you've done now.
0: Because, they, like there, it's like it, here to me. I am always going to come back to how subjective are our ethics, you yes, know? And right. if it's would that we that would be, be a
1: great what if episode, right? For sure, like for what, sure,
0: would we feel the same way on the other side? Would we be totally yeah. okay, just with these people not being destroyed, but so that our our potentiality was never created, you know?
1: Yeah, yeah. But again, you cannot, you you can like it. Would it would be a stretch? For what if, for the team of writers yeah. of what if, to effectively, like convince us that the earth that they would create is exactly the earth that we are protective of right now, if it is an right. earth that did not exist, and and so yeah. again, it goes back to a life that exists here and now is of greater import than a life that has not been manifested yeah. by this god, right?
0: Exactly. I think that's a good way to put it. Let's um, uh, we've, we're almost in an hour. I don't want to go too long. Uh, So let's turn to like the one last uh, ethical question that that I really want to talk about from this movie. And this is pulling the lens back a little because this is more the ethics of filmmaking than the ethics of the film. Um, But it's a topic that we've talked about quite a lot, which is representation. And I do just want to kind of lift up. I love how much broader the representation is in this movie in terms of having like an openly gay character or at least an openly queer character uh, an openly, you know, a disabled, a deaf character far more you know representation of groups like south asian and things like that i'm both so happy for it i also though have a little bit of a feeling of so like we want a gay main character you give us one out of ten we want a disabled main character you give us one out of ten you know it, it, it's both great and i want all of the movies to have this level of diversity but it feels a little weird that they shoved all the diversity into this one movie where it feels all much like, like, yeah, you don't like the K character. Don't worry. He's only on screen for five minutes and then you'll get somebody else. (laughs) Forgive the very cynical side of me here, but
1: it is you're, you're, uh, you're only a touch jaded Uh, just a little (laughs) bit, just a little bit. I, you know, I'm, I'm on the uh, the fence there too, because I, I feel like uh, I deeply appreciate that, uh, uh, what I have to imagine, my head canon is that Chloe Zhao came in and said, "This is the kind of cast we're going to build." Yeah, because um, you know, in in spite of all our intentionality, Kevin Feige is a middle-aged white man, and there is a certain perspective that needs to be balanced against that, right? Yes. In in a position of authority at Marvel, and. I think that the powers that be, I have this sense that the powers that be, or let's say a a sense of optimism, that the powers that be in making this movie decided we're going to have a cast that looks like this. It's going to be made up of women and men, and they will be made up of uh, varying shades of color across Mm -hmm. the spectrum. and, And also, we will absolutely... Uh, represent sexual identity as well, right. and uh, and sexuality as well. We're going to represent that somehow. And also, did have you seen how many how many characters we're putting in here? There's just a lot of characters, and eventually we kind of run out of steam on the checklist. But it's yeah. hard not to see that as tokenism. Like it's just new tokenism. And yeah. it it it's I, I want to give the the right amount, the judicious amount of credit where credit is truly do the fact that i you know i have a 15 year old uh, son and we went to this movie together and he noticed those things matthew yeah. right this is a, a teenager who stopped and said this is a marvel movie and those dudes are kissing and that's great right yeah. that is respect that this this is happening there were naked people on a beach rolling around getting it on in this movie which, which, by the way, only the second sex
0: scene in all of the MCU movies, going back to the Iron Man, uh, Tony and the reporter. Yes. Um. uh, You know. So, the ever puritan MCU, at least on film, is becoming. They know like... how to pull back the curtain
1: a little bit.
0: Yeah. Just and and I will bit. say, we got at least you know on um to my fan stuff. I got at least one email being like, I hated this movie because I yeah. wanted to take my child to it, but it had a sex scene, and my super sex positive self who. Used to teach sex ed. I yeah. A couple responses for that. That's not yeah, scary. I know.
1: I'm I, but, I'm I struggle because I'm pretty sex positive too, and yeah. I'm pretty sex positive. I only say that because I'm wildly what? sex positive. Let's have all the more <laughs> sex. And so, uh, and and so I I struggle with that. But I want to give credit that's that they didn't write it out because yeah, exactly. they coulda. And, so and I, I think that's what I come down is
0: to me because I I think things like the story of your son is so important. The story of I've heard from deaf fans who were just in tears in this movie because they'd never seen themselves on screen in that way, especially because that actress is, you know, deaf herself. Like, that was not a hearing actress who learned ASL.
1: This is Lauren uh, Ridloff that we're talking about.
0: Yeah. Like, they made sure, like, that they were able to have, and it's not the first time, like, Marley Matlin has done some great acting as well, but certainly in a superhero movie, you know, the first time we've had major South Asian representation this way. To me, it's more that it's like, I I want to note the fact that they did it in this ensemble as a like, okay, this is a good first step. I still want a gay main character. I still want a. Yeah. I still want main characters who check all the boxes. But but yeah, for me, yeah, it's not. I wouldn't say oh, so this is no good. So don't do this. You know, it's 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 like the two women kissing at the end of uh, you know, the last Star Wars movie. Like it's that's not good enough. But it's a step, and it's and a it's a step. good thing.
1: Yeah, um, I I think that is the that's the measure against which they should be judged, not how much haven't they done, but how much do they continue to to yeah. pepper into these mass market creations that have to address so many different ideological needs around yeah. the planet and it's only getting harder to do that and to push those boundaries. So I I I'm trying to soften a little bit my mm-hmm. personal sense of insult that they haven't done more and continue to applaud when they do something so yeah. that they know i love it and my family loves it and we want to see more representation of the world as we are living it the complex yeah. tapestry of people uh, across you know uh, across the the multiverse of fluidities yeah that exist right and and so you I, know I from neurodiversity we... to sexuality to ide- gender identity the works
0: yeah i I think that's such a great way to put it especially you know because the lip side is an ensemble should be the place where you see the most diversity because you have the most people you you know and so like the opposite of like so you if these ten people are supposed to represent Earth, they can't all just be European. You know that wouldn't make any sense, let alone be horribly racist. Yeah. So right.
1: yeah, it's but, but I you think can also hear how somebody on the on the the team would be saying, "But Lauren Ridloff is a woman. She's a person of color, and she's deaf. That's three check boxes." <laughs> yeah. It's, it, right. I mean, and I think it's, yeah,
0: it's important to be critical. Like. That's the thing is what I, when I'm going to come down on it is if in three years we've gotten all straight cis superheroes yes. and someone pushes a Marvel executive and they say, well, but we had Festus in, uh, you know, Eternals. Isn't that good enough? Like, n- no, that,
1: that it, it is not good enough. Yeah. We, but it, it is, we'll judge that against, against the three years from now bar. Exactly. Exactly. Right? So continue to push.
0: Um, so I think that's about all I had in terms of stuff to bring up. Um, I mean, there's, we could do episode upon episode upon episode, but unlike perhaps this movie, I want to have some good editing, uh, and stick to, <laughs> stick to as much as we can, uh, and, and be requited in our ethical decisions, discussions, uh, any other last points or, um, uh, questions you wanted to bring up, though.
1: I I don't feel like I would be doing justice to those questions by bringing anything up uh, uh, as we <laughs> lean into our closing credits. But I would just like to say I I deeply appreciate the invitation. I I love yeah. this conversation. I've I have truly enjoyed our conversations on Discord, and um and and love that that you invited me to continue them with awesome. you here.
0: No, my pleasure. It's been so great for me to be part of the next real family of podcasts because you know, I approach filmmaking in terms of the story it tells me. I And being part of the Marvel Movie Minute and doing uh, Next Real and the film board and other stuff with you and with Andy has given me so much more of an education about, you know, yeah, what's actually happening in terms of, like, when this shot is is doing this thing and all the stuff about movies that I don't even recognize but that are telling the story. Um, I am going to... uh, That whole description you gave about why you didn't think Eternals worked and how you said that you thought it kind of got lost too much in the artistry of it and like not the storytelling. And it was a little bit long. And I'm just going to play that back to you the next time you ask me why I don't like Dune. Cause I think <laughs> all of that applies to Dune. <laughs> but that Touché. being said, you know, I, I love these conversations. It's great. And if we ever, if you and I ever get truly, truly, truly bored minute by minute, Babylon five, <laughs> I don't need to get all that bored to do that kind
1: of a show with you, Matthew. <laughs> I know.
0: I, I'd, I'd stand love to wait. I would at least do episode by episode Babylon 5, but still, that would be committing to a, a long period of my life. Yes, anyway, it would. Uh, Pete, for those who want to um, hear more of your stuff, like I've talked about Next Reel, but tell us a little more about the specific podcasts you're on and how people can find them.
1: Well, I'm on uh, really too many podcasts at this point to to talk about, but you can find me at truestory.fm where you can find all the podcasts, including the podcasts of The Next Reel. Um, uh, In terms of The Next Reel, if you're into movies, we're about to hit... Goodness, episode a thousand is coming up in the coming that's weeks. Awesome. Uh we just celebrated our 10-year anniversary uh, on November 11th And so it's it was really fun to look at the community that's built up around all of the shows that we do. Uh but true story.fm is where you can find everything that that we we do in the podcast space, movie related awesome. and non.
0: Yeah, check it out. There's so much good stuff happening there from some very serious reviews to stuff like Saturday matinee where you guys just have so much fun with things. Uh, an earlier episode did a great thing on um, – they basically did a bracketology of horror movies where somehow in terms of like the best – they they're looking at the best presentations of, you know, a Frankenstein, a Dracula, a mummy, or um, – Wolfman. Wolfman. And um, – the uh, the the Rocky from Rocky Horror Picture Show got fairly high up in the Frankenstein <laughs> category, as did the Frankenstein from Young Frankenstein from Mel Brooks. So yes. it, that had me there. So, uh, Pete, thank you so much. Thank you to all of us. Uh, to All you at Next Real for welcoming they, there to our fans. Um, What do you think? Like this movie has already caused a lot of, you know, some people love it. Some people don't. And that's totally fine. Let's, let's get another controversies. What do you think? What do you, um, are you, t- are, is anyone out there also on Team Icarus or even Team Celestial? Um, do you think we're completely wrong and the, the movie was pretty clear and, and Cersei forever? What do you think? You can send feedback to us, uh, by searching for the ethical Panda on Facebook. You can uh, find us on Twitter at ethical Panda 77. Unfortunately, the ethical Panda was, uh, too long a name. Uh, by one character hence ethical panda 77 you can email me at theethicalpanda at gmail.com or of course just go to theethicalpanda.com. there you'll find this podcast my star wars universe podcast uh all the stuff i'm doing on marvel movie minute and a couple other podcasts that i've had a, a great pleasure to be a part of we're just starting to get into our coverage of the witcher uh we're going to kind of do some reviews of season one to then be able to talk about season two uh on bingers assemble um all the new Star Wars stuff that's coming out. I'm definitely going to be all over. It's going to be a great time. So uh, thank you all very much for being a fans and have a great day.